For this episode, I want to warn my listeners that we do discuss topics surrounding mental health. If you are suffering or know someone suffering, please consider reaching out to someone you trust or feel free to contact Crisis Services Canada at 1-833-456-4566 or text them 24-7 at 456-45. It's like, okay, I say a lot of horrible shit to myself. Like, what do I say that's positive? And the things that I say that are positive are things that I didn't really expect. And it kind of reframed my own identity to myself in a way that I didn't really think of before. I'm Molly Staley, and this is Handy Queer, a show about the things we've always been and the things we're just realizing we are. All right, welcome to Handy Queer, Jay. It's nice to have you here. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, So the reason that I wanted to interview you is because of just the multi-layer experience that you have with... um, queerness and mental health and how that sort of couples with your art and your just your life in general which is what Handy Queer is all about is talking to people with real lived experience. So let's start with the queer part of Handy Queer. Um, Are you comfortable talking to me about when you knew that you were gay and um, how that what your sort of coming out story is? Okay, well, I mean, I, I think I've always known that I was gay. Like, I remember having a crush on this guy DJ in kindergarten, and I remember thinking it was weird, and that's something like that's something that girls do. And I like played with dolls and stuff like that. And I definitely had a, a lot more of a feminine side to me as a child. Um, so I knew from a young age, but I grew up in a, unfortunately a very homophobic family. My family is not that way anymore. But growing up in the eighties and nineties, it was very much the case. So it was sort of um, an issue of it being sort of shamed to the side. Uh, so it was repressed for a very long time. And then I came out probably, I was about, I forget when it was, around 17, 18, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I first told my friends and uh, that went fine. My friends didn't really care at all. So that was nice. Um, and then I was hesitant to tell my family for obvious reasons. My dad was particularly homophobic. Um, so when I eventually did, uh, it was a big argument. We got into a big fight. There was a few days of a lot of tension, lots of yelling and door slamming and crying and Mm -hmm. anger and stuff like that. And then it came down to an ultimatum where I either had to not be gay or move out. So I was like, if I was going to, if I was going to continue to be gay, as they said, I could no longer live under their roof. Um, So I left home. And then uh, that's my coming out story. Did you ever, I mean, I know that this is a very common topic in the queer community is this this idea or mentality that non-queer folk feel that it's a decision um, to be queer. Did you ever have times in your life where you thought, I don't have to be this way or I'm choosing to be this way? No, I, there's no, I like, it's something that's so ingrained into my identity that it's, it's inseparable for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Sort of like how my heart would be inseparable from my body. It's just an integral part of me. It's, you know, it's a big deal and it's no deal at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the only choice that I faced growing up was choosing to continue to repress it or to try like struggling with the idea of coming out, which I don't know how long I was struggling for that for probably my whole entire teenage years. It was Mm -hmm. like, should I come out? Should I not come out? I had a girlfriend for two years. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and that was excellent cover. Uh, (laughs) and we're, we're friends to this day. She knows she was one of the first people that I came out to. 
Um, was her yeah. reaction supportive? No, she was pissed. Okay. I can, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, shortly after we broke up and um, she was just really unhappy about that. So she was like, so our whole relationship was a lie. I'm like, no, I really liked hanging out with you, but we're more friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you guys are friends now. Yeah. And I mean, it was also really easy, even easier because she um, was from a very religious family. So there was no no opportunity for hanky-panky, so I was never put in a position where I was, you know, going to be made to feel uncomfortable physically. That's good. It was good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say something horrible, but I won't. <laughs> I was going to say, so technically you're a virgin, according to the straight world? Um, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think according to any universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so just kind of going back to your coming out and... It never being a decision um, for me personally. So I didn't come out until a year and a bit ago. Um, so I'm 28 now. So that's not late by any means because I know people who have not come out until, you know, in their 60s or 70s. It's never too late. It's never too late to come out. You're right. Um, but it did feel like a huge burden had been lifted. And similar to what you're saying, I feel like it's always been there. It's been in me. It's just not something that I've tapped into or I felt like I couldn't tap into. Um, especially because, you know, within the queer community, there's still a lot of bi erasure. Yes. Um, and it's it's very funny because you would think that in the LGBTQ community, they would be the most supportive. But even, you know, <laughs> even some people in the community deny bisexuality to this day. So I think I felt really scared about mm -hmm. embracing those feelings. So um, when you did come out and you told your friends, you know, did you feel some sort of physical like release, like finally, or was it, were you scared or? I was terrified. I was trembling every time. I probably cried every time. Yeah. Um, afterwards, I felt huge relief. It was very awkward. There was a time for maybe a few weeks or a month or so where I, we'd didn't I, there was the space was needed I think I think my friends maybe needed to sort of wrap their heads around it or mm -hmm. I was like when I was a child like a young child and I was you know playing with dolls and that kind of thing it was pretty easy to tell that I was gay but that as I grew up and that was sort of um you know practiced out of me those behaviors in a, in a lot of ways uh it was really difficult to tell like nobody would have known mm -hmm. <laughs> so when they came out everybody was very surprised and I think, yeah, there was an adjustment period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, support networks are incredibly important for, I mean, everyone, but within the LGBTQ community especially, we really rely on one another. So your friends now, how are they, how do they support you? I probably have the most supportive friends in the whole entire universe, particularly <laughs> the last few years with um, some of my mental health struggles. They're there for me no matter what happens. Or, yeah, there's there's nothing that I won't trust them with. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very happy that... And you're one of them. Yeah, I'm very happy <laughs> to be one of your friends. Um, okay, well, let's, let's talk about mental health. Um, it's a big thing that everyone, obviously, to some degree struggles with. Um, personally, me, I have chronic anxiety and chronic depression. Um, and I take medication for it. Uh, not everyone does. It's something that really helps me. Um, so tell me a bit about your your journey with mental health. When did you start to understand that maybe you weren't feeling quote unquote normal? And 
sort of, yeah, just <coughs> tell me about it. Well, okay. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD in probably August of 2016. Mm -hmm. um, I went on a camping trip uh, by myself for four days and I had the time to myself to think and there weren't any distractions. I, you know, I finished my book. I didn't feel like drawing. There was a lot of just like hiking and walking through the woods and stuff like that. And a lot of memories came back from childhood and stuff like that. And it resulted in a like a nervous breakdown the, when I got back. I went to work on the Monday morning. And uh, I also worked in a really bad job where um, basically I was getting yelled at by customers. It's an escalations management job. So if a customer is escalated, they'll yell at you. And that, 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 that day wasn't the day for that to mm -hmm. happen. I had a particularly aggressive person. I was thinking about a lot of aggression in my past and how that had affected me. And I broke down at work and um, I felt like I was having a heart attack or... Like my body was on fire. It was a lot of really intense physical uh, sensations and pain. Um, so I went to the doctor. Um, they had said it was an anxiety attack. That's the first time I've ever really had a full-on anxiety attack like that. I've had bouts of depression and anxiety in the past, but they, I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time it was, okay, this is a serious anxiety attack. We're going to monitor you. So I was advised to take some time off work. Um, in that time off work, I was assigned a psychologist and a psychiatrist, so I had a lot of in, uh, interviews with them. Um, they're the ones that diagnosed me with PTSD because of, you know, I told them about my, my stories and, um, and my symptoms and stuff like that. So I was having trouble sleeping, uh, mood swings, very emotions all over the place, uh, physical pain and depression and anxi anxiety to the point where I like couldn't leave my house. Mm -hmm. I was like pacing back and forth all the time, like worrying about everything and nothing. Um, so I took some time off and then I was encouraged to go on uh, short-term disability. So I did that. And during that time, we were kind of figuring out, okay, where is all this coming from? And I was saying earlier about how, um, you know, I grew up in a really homophobic family and I, we had to, I had to repress that part of myself, that expression of my personality. Um, and over the course of my life, that did really bad long-term damage. Um, there's a lot of shame and humiliation kind of that came with it and a lot of intentional humiliation on me and like various uh, abuses. So uh, that had a cumulative effect and it just got, you know, I, I was really good at learning to repress things. So I just kept repressing and repressing and repressing. And after I came out, I sort of, even though that was, that was initial sense of relief, I hadn't even begun to realize what I needed to deal with. So I just lived my life as normal throughout my 20s. Um, like a lot of people who've been traumatized and who don't deal with their problems properly, I dumped a lot of drugs and alcohol on my problems. Um, and then sort of life sort of stabilized a little bit and I just had undiagnosed depression and anxiety where I just, you know, I'd have trouble leaving the house sometimes for both depression and anxiety, but I didn't really know what it was. And I'd had partners that I was living with that didn't really understand and were super supportive because I couldn't communicate it. I didn't know what was going on, so it was hard to explain, and I'm sure it must have been interpreted in a lot of different ways. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then it led up to about some 2016 when I had that anxiety attack, and I've been trying to manage it since. Um, I think that even though that was a really traumatic experience, that first like nervous breakdown after camping, <clears throat> uh, it was... It sort of opened floodgates for the mm -hmm. next couple of years, and like in the last few months, I've really, I feel, I feel good again. I feel, I feel better. But prior to that, it was a, it was a real struggle. I had was hospitalized twice for anxiety attacks, where 
um, they didn't really know what was going on. And I, my body was in such intense physical pain. Like I didn't even know what I was going to do. I thought I was dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time I had to call the, had to call 911. I called Alberta Health Link. Cause like, what's happening to me? And because of the exact symptoms, the ambulance had to come, but I was dripping. These are some of the physical, uh, symptoms of of extreme anxiety so it was dripping sweat it felt like my insides had been hollowed out with a cold spoon is the best way that I can Mm -hmm. describe it and I couldn't move I was vomiting and um, the paramedics had to come in and they did all these tests and nobody could find anything wrong but clearly there was something wrong and then you know the psych psychological assessment happened at the hospital and then yeah anxiety attack so and that was after learning to deal with it. So when the floodgates opened, it was a lot of, a lot of talk therapy, a lot of trying to find a family physician, just trying to set up that, you know, medical support, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't always easy. I mean, Canada is really great. We have a great healthcare system, but we're really underprepared for uh, mental health care a lot of the time. Absolutely. I know when I had, it's funny that you say that because I had an anxiety attack uh, followed by a breakdown my anxiety attack, same thing. I called HealthLink and I was like, I can't breathe. My whole body's tingling. I'm sweating. Like, I don't know what's going on. And they were like, uh, do you have someone who can drive you to the hospital? Um, you know, you just need to stay calm. We can get you an ambulance, but it sounds like, you know, as long as you can breathe, just get someone to take you. So I got my brother to take me in and this doctor looked at me and immediately was like, we need to sedate you. And I'd never been sedated before. That was a very interesting experience. But then, uh, so that was sort of my first kind of wake-up call um, that something more serious was going on. Uh, and then what I found, though, accessing the medical system prior to my breakdown and then after my breakdown is that although Canada does have incredible resources and getting into clinics can be quick, the amount of like the amount of doubt that was thrown at me by doctors, especially male doctors. And just, you know, I would hear terms like, you know, you just need to breathe more. You need to go outside. You need to exercise, you know. Um, And then also on the the flip side, I would have doctors throwing prescription drugs at me. Literally, uh, without writing me a prescription, they would just open their cabinet and be like, have you heard of da-da-da? Oh, the drugs. Yeah, and they would give them to me. So when I first started figuring out that um, I was like having some serious anxiety issues, they had me on all these different meds just willy-nilly. And so my first relationship with medication was very negative. Um, and it took finding a supportive doctor, which I'm glad you're looking into, I finally found uh, a great doctor. I won't say their name, but they're the best. (laughs) Um, And it's a woman, and it was the first person who really believed me. And then it took a while for me to wean off of these, like, ridiculous drugs that these other doctors were giving me to find something that works for me. And um, now I'm just, like, I mean, you can't, if you're living with chronic mental illness, you're never, like, Yay, I'm super happy, but like things are better, right? Yes, yeah. I, I feel You're enjoying life. <laughs> yeah, things feel balanced. I feel like I can approach things. But like you said, there are days where um even with my meds and even with my own personal talk therapy, because I have to talk myself through things. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you I absolutely do. Yeah. yeah. There's still days where 
I can't do anything. And I just have learned to forgive myself for that. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned as well is like there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes with mental illness when you can't function properly and you don't like it doesn't seem to make any sense. Like, why can't I do these normal things that everybody else seems to be able to do? And there's still, unfortunately, a lot of societal stigma against mental health. So um, it can be hard to uh, to deal with that sometimes when, you, when your worst enemy is yourself. Mm-hmm. And like those days when I wasn't able to leave the house, for example, like the, what made it exponentially harder and harder and harder as the hours went on is just like the harder I was being on myself and the internal dialogue, the things you say to yourself are just They're ridiculous. horrible. I would never call, well, I won't say never, <laughs> but I I would be calling myself like a loser and a nobody and yeah, no and good. And meaning it and really meaning yeah. it at the time, yeah. And then, and it would just be sort of like on loop in my head and... Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. Horrible state to be in. I had to try one of the things that I did with my therapist who I am now seeing. I've seen it, been seeing him for a little over a year now, Dr. V. He's also the literal best. He's like best thing ever. Um but he really trained me to pay attention to that internal monologue and like write everything down at the end of the day or at certain periods throughout the day and just pay attention to what you're saying to yourself. And over time, I was like, okay, this has to stop. But then just try and start paying attention to the positive things to, that you say to yourself. And I don't know if you went through that with your therapist as well, but it was an interesting journey of self-discovery to change that self-talk. And it's like, okay, I say a lot of horrible shit to myself. Like, what do I say that's positive? And the things that I say that are positive are things that I didn't really expect and it kind of reframed my own identity to myself in a Mm -hmm. way that I didn't really think of before. Um, I know my therapist really believed in like outlets and, Mm. um, you know, channeling that negative energy in a more positive way. That sounds, you know, a little bit naive, (laughs) but it it actually does work. And so sometimes the simplest answers are the best ones. For sure. And so for you, it'd be, I would say like your artwork. Mm -hmm. So tell like, tell us me about um, your art and when you started doing art and how your mental illness sort of both supports and interacts with that. Okay. Well, I think that the only thing I've ever wanted to be since I was born is an artist. I I think I was born with talent. I'm not ashamed to say that. I was very good at drawing when I was a little kid. I could draw pretty much anything that I saw. Um, I learned to paint very quickly. Um, I learned about color very quickly. I was very adept at visual art from a young age. So it's it's always been a part of my identity that's been a source of pride and it's where I draw a lot of my confidence from. That's, I it feels sort of some, a lot of the time it feels like what I was put on this earth to do, which is funny because it's taking so long to get a career off the ground. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've always known that that is something that is really positive about me and that I could always rely on to fall back on to feel better about myself or even, you know, to make money. Um, so that's something I've always done. And then... I went to uh, school for art. I went to. I got my bachelor's through Thompson River um, in BC, but I actually went in my hometown to Georgian College, which is you know the local hometown college. Um, and I studied there, and it was some of the best years of my life, as most people's university time is. And I learned more about like what it is to be an artist, and a lot about art history, and like. I became really fascinated in the life of an artist as an archetype, and how. Um, everybody's just participating in their particular chapter in art history, however big or small that may be, and you're part of a long, huge conversation. It's a really kind of spiritual thing for me. The history of art is the history of humans. Mm-hmm. For 
Um, so as far as my mental health affecting that, sometimes um, I've been, it's, it varies a lot. Like sometimes if I'm having a really rough time, I can really channel it into my art. Like you say, it's an outlet and get it out. Um, sometimes that type of mindset, mindset will completely block my want to do anything or ability to do anything. There's been a lot of times when I've been really anxious in particular um, where I have sat in front of my easel or in front of my sketchbook and had a, had an idea in my head and I know mechanically my body knows exactly what to do and how to reproduce this image that I want to do. But something in my brain like stops it from happening. I start to second guess myself. I lose that confidence that I should have in my ability. Um, and it will affect it like that. Uh, since I've been off on off of work and just trying to focus on art as sort of an occupational therapy and trying to build a career out of it, um, <clears throat> it's sort of changed. And I don't really feel that um, now that I've been like consciously addressing all of these issues that need to be addressed with my therapist and my physician, um, I treat art more like a job. So I will log my hours. Mm -hmm. I'll have a lot more structure to it. And I find that now that I've like overlaid a sense of structure to my general practice, um, I don't second guess myself as much. I'll have a plan. I'm always excited every day to get up and like start painting something or just to practice even to play with color or just practice my flesh modeling or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's an ongoing process, but I don't really know how much it would inform my art. I guess it must. Um, all art comes from, is an expression of the artist's identity in one way or another. And my identity is hugely influenced by, you know, my things that I'm currently going through, including dealing with mental health and managing that day to day. So it's hard to say. I do a wide variety of art um, and possibly that indecision on choosing a style could be a result of... Yeah, I was actually, I was just going to ask, like, how would you describe your art? Like, tell us, you know, what... What is Jay's art? I once in university submitted an artist statement that was a heart drawn with a red crayon and signed it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have trouble putting it into words. It's about the joy of painting. Um, the act of expression itself, it's pure joy. Like if you can, it's like magic. It's very much like creating something from nothing. And it feels magical when you do it. I feel, I feel like I'm magic when I make something out of nothing. And mm -hmm. it feels... Great, and I just got distracted in the pleasure of that, and I kind of lost track of your question. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I actually, when you said that, um, it reminded me of, have you seen Billy Elliot? No. Oh, really? Okay, well, then my reference won't make sense. Well, Maybe I actually, should. So Billy Elliot is this boy who grows up in, like, a coal mining town, very, like, it would kind of be, like, your experience in a sense. Very, It's, like, very blue-collar, conservative, homophobic, and he discovers that he wants to be a dancer, and he just has this like raw natural talent, but like his whole world is against him mm. pursuing this. And he eventually gets an opportunity to audition for a big ballet school. And they're asking him these questions. And because he's you know a bit of an uneducated kid, he doesn't know how to answer and he's just bombing his audition. And then finally they're like, what does it feel like when you're dancing? And he's like, it's like electricity. And it was just like, I remember as a dancer, like, that's what that felt like. Yes. And magic is another way. That's that's what I'm getting at. That, yeah. It's that feeling. It's electrifying. It's it like, like all gives, through your body. Yeah, you're, you're full yeah. of life force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, you should watch the movie. It's I should, really yeah, good. It sounds very touching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was my question? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to see, like, how you would describe your artwork. Oh, um, yeah. So I began about my story about the red 
heart in a crayon and in the joy of painting. And I think um, going back to sort of how I am fascinated with um, the artist archetype in the com- ongoing conversation of art history, and I kind of I kind of reject a lot of um, like mo- modern and postmodern art theory where it says you have to have like the conceptual like legacy, conceptual art legacy where you have to have you treat art like science. It's like, hey, this is my practice. I do portraits. Here's why I do portraits. And mm-hmm. portraits are my thing. That's my brand. I hate the word brand. I hate to be branded. I'm not a brand. You know what I mean? And I think that's a thing that's been very popular for a very long time. And um, there aren't a lot of artists that do like a hugely disparate sample of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I don't think I will ever be able to do just one kind of work. So it's hard to pin down how to describe my work. I yeah. think I'm interested a lot in, uh, I'm, a, I'm a painter. So I think I'm interested a lot in uh, traditional painting tropes and uh, painting. I don't know if you could call them archetypes, but traditional styles. Like I like, the, I like to explore the landscape, capital T, capital L, or the portrait. Mm-hmm. Or um, last few years, I've gotten into experimenting with different forms of abstraction um, so playing with those strong, common, repetitive themes, but I don't know, I draw my source material from the internet. So I just like, we'll go about my day, I'll hear a song and a song, will, a song lyric will really inspire me. And it, like, I'll think of some visuals if I'm, I don't know, going at the grocery store and there's like a huge display of fresh oranges and I want to go home and like paint that orange into the background of a room that I'm painting or something. It's really hard to describe. I really try very hard to just let it flow naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I'm, I'm almost uncomfortable trying to define it. I don't think, I think that goes against the point of what I'm trying to get at. For sure. I know it's kind of like a, a, a simple question for a complex practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm the proud owner of four Jay Tannenin pieces of artwork, <laughs> and they're all very different, and I love them all equally. Actually, there's one that sometimes when I look at it, I'm like, man, Jay really did get the my crooked nose. You did a really good job in my portrait of my crooked nose. I do love the portrait of you. Okay, sometimes, <laughs> so I think sometimes when I paint, depending on my mood and depending on my mental state, I think, Sometimes a painting can be a real struggle. I have paintings that I've been working on for up, I think they're up to eight years now. I just keep oh, yeah. adding to the layers and the layers and the textures fun and the process is fun. But sometimes it feels like a painting will just fall off the end of my brush without me even trying. And your portrait was one of them. I did it in like 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. There's only three colors on it. It happened very quickly and I loved it. So I'm glad you love it too. Well, Orlando loves it, which is why he, he got it from you. But I look at it and I'm just like, hmm, I guess that's me. Okay. It does look like me. Yeah, there's a resemblance for, yeah, sure. for sure. Not exactly, but you definitely know it's you. Yeah. And it's you from from that moment and how I was thinking about you at that time. I think at that time, I don't know. I don't know if we were hanging out a lot or not a lot, but I was thinking about you and it was a bit of a serious painting. Like you're not, it's not silly. No, think, no, not at yeah, all. I think we were maybe having some serious conversations and I just thought, you know, Molly's a really thoughtful person Thank and you. it just sort of like came out like that. Yeah. Well, I am very happy to own four pieces of your art. <laughs> so being somebody who's very familiar with your art, um, not only as an owner of your art, but being at your apartment, seeing your process and being to many of your shows, um, what I find interesting is you, there's a number of portraits, some of which are nude. Um, many happen to be men, but I've also seen the odd, you know, female nude, which I find interesting. So what? how does your, your queerness... Um, make its way into 
your art process and you know when you're coming up with subjects or ideas for your artwork does your queerness at all influence it I think that the only time my queerness would influence my art is if I'm playing at being a provocateur of some kind um it's interesting you bring up the male versus the female nudes because I think of that every single time I paint a nude is mm-hmm. how does my sexuality come into this? There's a big, like a feminist art history talks a lot about the male nude and feminist art history is of course very important or the male gaze rather. So the male gaze is a gaze of power and traditionally men have had the power and they gaze with whatever they look at become sexualized if it's nude. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting as a, I'm a, I'm a male artist, like like so many artists before me, but, and the male gaze is very, is a very serious thing I need to be aware of to not trivialize bodies and stuff like that have a respect for the human body and all its forms and stuff like that but i i'm gay so of course i sexualize male body so every time i paint a male nude i think it's i approach it i try to approach a male and a female nude in the same way but it inevitably becomes more about sensuality with the male body there's you know those types of experiences and with the female body it's sort of more about um like a spirituality, like a Mother Earth kind of thing. So it's less about sensuality and more about like a spirituality and like a like a archetypal, like nurturing feelings and like a softness, but it's not sexual in, in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a few times where I have painted um, paintings to be pr- specifically provocative and to bring up queerness. I did a show when I was in university um, and it was at this gay bar uh, called C'est La Vie in Barrie, Ontario. It's closed now. The city expropriated it and has since done nothing with the plot because they just wanted the gay bar out of town and it worked. And so while we were there and we were trying to, you know, just put on shows there and I was angry at the general attitude towards that bar. So I had submitted paintings of uh, male strippers mm-hmm. and they're, they were wearing like, their underpants were painted with glitter and it was very fun and sexy. And, uh, there was a complaint about it in the newspaper. And then there was a petition to get the art shut down and that fueled me like nobody's business. And it made me want to do more and more of that. So for a long time I was doing very provocative, very sexualized, um, paintings, but the, the excitement from that has sort of died down. And I don't feel that there's any like enemy I need to provoke with that anymore. Well, your reaction, I think, is incredibly intrinsic in just the LGBTQ community in general is when they when they oppress, we rise up sort of totally. mentality. Yeah. They only oppress us if we let them. Yeah, absolutely. Let's actually, let's give you an opportunity to talk about the show you have coming up. Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, I have a show on February 15th. It's going to be at Coral Plaza, which is just north of White Avenue here in Edmonton or south of White Avenue. I keep getting that direction (laughs) mixed up, but I will plaster this information everywhere on social media when the time comes. Um, So Coral Plaza is a new venue. Uh, It's in sort of like a warehouse type space. And um, the uh, people that are running it got recently got an artist grant to open up an artist space. So they've had this will be the first visual art show they have there. It's going to be myself, um, an artist named Joe Valentine, mm-hmm. um, and a few other um, like artists who haven't quite been confirmed yet. But it'll be really fun. I think it'll be sort of like a queer pop bent uh, for the most part. Um, I think that my roommate and friend, uh, who's half of Girls Club DJs, uh, mm-hmm. may, 
they might DJ it as well. So I think it's going to be like a fun art party kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which will be really good. I think there will be – I'm encouraging everybody to have $20 pieces. We're going to have a section where art, art should be accessible and affordable to everybody that come. I know a lot of people that are going to, going to come are going to be younger in their early 20s or so. And it would be great if they could walk away with something. So I think that a lot of us can create prints or small drawings or just something that we feel comfortable you know, just giving out for, for a small fee. Um, the sh- point of the show is to sort of open up that part of town to more art events because um, I think they're, Edmonton's really heavy in galleries and then there's a few other like artist agencies type situations that are happening but there aren't a lot of artist run spaces other than of course latitude 53 which is Mm -hmm. super historic but we want to sort of branch out and add more to okay jay thank you so much for being here i've really enjoyed this and uh i look forward to seeing how this episode all comes together thanks molly my pleasure for being here And that's episode two. That one was really great to record because it was with a very good friend of mine, Jay Tenenin. So I want to thank him again for meeting with me. Check out the links below in the show description for more information on Jay's artwork and his upcoming show. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>